This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. To spread grace, speak truth, restart, this is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom, the kingdom, yes it is, gotta spread the word. What you know, good and camp. You're listening to the and campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line. The right, Reverend Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, you got to tell me, uh, I know you got a lot going on. Did you do anything special for Valentine's Day? So we actually uh, made a covenant early in our marriage that we covenant. would not celebrate a covenant uh, Valentine's Day. Okay. Uh, so we celebrate our uh, love and marriage all throughout the year. Every, every day of Valentine's Day. Yeah, we, we take a specific notice of the commercial holiday of Valentine's Day and uh, skip it on purpose. I can dig that as long as y'all are on the same page, because I know some brothers who have taken that covenant just with themselves. And their <laughs> wife is kind of uh, not in agreement with that. But as long yeah, as, as y'all are on work. the same page, that's good. That's not going to work. How about yeah, you? Did you do something cool for something? Yeah, we we, we, we went to dinner. You know, I got some flowers and, and, and all that stuff. Um, nothing too big. But I do want to give a shout out to the restaurant we went to because it was excellent. So if you're in Atlanta... You got to go to Low Country Steak. It's a restaurant uh, that that was uh, founded by uh, G. Garvin, who's Atlanta native. Some of y'all might have seen some of his shows. G. Garvin can cook, man. I got a steak there that was just excellent. So I told him I was going to give you give him a shout out because they deserved it. Uh, check out G. Garvin's Low Country Steak if you are in the Atlanta area. It's right in Midtown and you will not regret it. So I got to take my my wife out there, my bride to uh there she enjoyed we enjoyed our time uh good music great food uh and so it was good man it turned out good you know I, i'm not gonna lie a lot of times i wait to the last minute to do all this stuff i'm not the most romantic guy but i'm getting better and so it's all about the progress my wife seemed to appreciate the progress so it's you know i'm feeling good about it so yeah i'm gonna check that spot out next time i'm in atlanta yeah 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 well we have a special guest today uh we have a uh, reverend eugene cho who's gonna join us in a second and so i'm really excited about that there's a whole lot of stuff going on you know Nothing's more exciting to me than watching the, the Lakers lose, but I may even be a little more excited about this particular uh, interview. So you know how we do. We want to shout out our, our sponsor, who is the Fetzer Institute, uh, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. I'm going to say this again. For those of you who are in Atlanta and Chicago, if you are interested in, in upping your political game, if you're interested in running for office or working on campaigns or understanding policy better, you need to apply to the Christian Civic Leadership Academy. We are uh, we have put out applications for that program uh, that we are partnering with the Fetzer, Fetzer Institute on. And if you know somebody who's interested in politics, they talk a lot about it. You think they might be good at it. You live in the Atlanta or Chicago area. Make sure you go to andcampaign.org slash academy and uh, apply for this uh, opportunity. It's going to be a great fellowship. We're going we're going to try to form Christians, whether they and it's nonpartisan. So we're going to try to form Christians on both sides of the aisle or independence or whatever, whatever you may be, 
to engage politics in a more faithful way. And this is a, a new initiative for the AND campaign. We're really excited about it and we want y'all to get involved. We want a good pool of applicants so we can get a, a great a bunch of fellows in and really teach them what this this thing is all about and how to glorify God uh, in their walk in the public square. But let's get into it. So as you know, how you know how it always goes, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Like I said earlier, we have a very special guest on with us today who is Reverend Eugene Cho. Uh, Reverend Eugene Cho is the uh, president and CDO of Bread for the World. And what they do is they advocate uh, for the end of hunger in the U.S. and all around the world. So they're going to be, you know, they're, they're uh, going to the leaders of this this good nation and saying, hey, we need to make sure that people aren't starving around us or starving around the world. And so it's work that really needs to be done. Thank you for joining us, Reverend Cho. How you doing, man? Justin, Chris, what a pleasure and an honor to join you. Uh, please call me Eugene. And I could spend the entire half hour talking about the demise of the Lakers as well. So let's do it. <laughs> See, this is my type of guy. It's already starting off on oh, the right we're, foot. We're doing, we're doing pretty good. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's, that's exactly where I want to start this conversation off. But, but, but Eugene, tell us a little bit about your organization uh, and, and what it is you guys do in a little more detail. Well, again, thanks for having me. For those that have never heard of Bread for the World, they can simply check us out online at bread.org. And Bread for the World is a Christian advocacy organization uh, compelled by our faith in Christ Jesus, believing that we can end hunger in our nation and around the world. Now, we, we need many people, many churches, individuals. Uh, our space in which we're called to do this work is urging our lawmakers and those who have influence around the world to consider policies uh, that will help end hunger. It requires all of these things. Oftentimes, as Christians, I'm, I'm grateful for local churches and individuals that have church food pantries and food banks. All of these things matter. We know that. We should celebrate that and support that. But we're also urging um, our moral document, like our budget as a nation, our leaders to be driven not just by political agenda or their motivations, but to really have this moral sense of urgency. Uh, Bread for the World was started about 46, 47 years ago, and it was started by a group of local church pastors in New York City who realized that as they were hanging out and fellowshipping, they began to share stories about their congregants and their uh, people in their communities struggling uh, with hunger uh, for their families and for their children. And they realized that they needed to come together uh, to basically amplify the voices of those who were struggling with hunger and sharing them uh, with their uh, elected members of Congress. And that's how it got started. Wow, that's awesome. It, it is amazing what the church can do when we come together, when we act as a body. Now, it's my understanding, Eugene, that hunger in general is something you take very personally, that there's you have some um, family history dealing with hunger. Can you can you talk to us about why that's such a personal issue for you and some of your family history? Yeah, you know, my, my father was born in what is now called North Korea. Um, it's a strange question when people ask him, where are you from, north or south? Because his response uh, is a very quizzical response. He just says, uh, Korea. Uh, it's because back when he was a child, there was only one country, a war 
several years after his birth, uh, was what severed and separated millions of families uh, in that country. Uh, but, you know, it's strange. He's now 86 years old, still with us, still going strong. And every now and then he shares these uh, just absolutely heartbreaking stories. Uh, for example, needing to pull out grass from the ground and to consume it in order to satisfy hunger pangs. One of his jobs as a young teenager was to scour through garbage cans behind restaurants trying to collect eggshells. And he would bring these eggshells to my grandmother, who would then grind it for hours or maybe even for a few days in order to take these eggshells uh, to grind them into powder, to place them into boiling water to become a source of vitamin D for other children. Uh, these are stories that might be hard for many of us, probably most of us to understand. But the reality is that there are similar stories around the world right now, whether it be these dirt cookies in Haiti, uh, when we hear stories about those who are suffering in Afghanistan, where about 90% plus of that nation are struggling with food insecurity. So it's very personal uh, for that reason. Uh, and also, you know, my wife and I, and at that time, our two young uh, baby children, you know, we went through a season of our lives as a young church planter or attempting to be a church planter in Seattle, uh, where we left our job. I wasn't quite sure how we were going to make it as church planters and uh, a federal program called Women, Infant and Children, the WIC program. It's similar to the SNAP food step program. Um, you know, it, I don't want to look back and, and, and sensationalize it, but I think that program really helped us out during a season of our life where we needed to uh, have some extra help uh, with groceries uh, to, to, sus to sustain us through a, a very difficult time of our life. So for those reasons, um, it's very personal. And the last thing that I would say is as a pastor of a local church in Seattle for many, many years, uh, this was a reality for some of our congregants. And as we're trying to pastor them and care for them, I'm grateful that our church, we were able to come alongside them and love them and pray for them and practically help them through different things that we were doing. But I'm also grateful that we didn't have to do that alone, that they had their friends community, but they also had these programs within the state that were able to support them as well. Man, that's great. Uh, Chris, you got, you got anything, any questions for him? Yeah, I mean, I'm listening, uh, Eugene, to to your story and the stories that you tell. And one of the things that uh, grabs me is that you talk about hunger, uh, even in your own personal story, in in, in different contexts, right? So you talk about uh, your your dad's story in Korea and your own story with your wife um, in in Seattle. And a lot of times, when I'm talking about hunger or poverty more generally. Uh, one of the pieces of pushback that you get is that, well, you know, in, in the United States, we don't really have poor, you know, when you look at globally, even poor people in the United States are wealthy on the global stage. Um, and I, I sort of get that, but it doesn't, for me, alleviate that sort of uh, burden to address these issues. So do you experience that? Do you think about that? Can you just talk to us about that a little bit? Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, there's, I think, um, I think we can acknowledge uh, that hunger looks different in different contexts. And, and what oftentimes folks that work in this space, they refer to global hunger as extreme hunger, right? And right now, because of COVID or exasperated by COVID, 
there's probably approximately 850 million plus people that live in what they categorize as extreme poverty. Uh, people that are surviving on less than $2 a day, basically. People that are uh, not able to not just survive, not, not just to thrive, but that are struggling with survival. Uh, I mean, just consider this for a second. I mean, this is sobering for me to even share, but um, as Dreadful the World works around issues of malnutrition, we have a child, a human child created in the image of God that dies every 10 to 11 seconds because of the complexities of malnutrition in the world. And so it's a very extreme category, but it exists. And the, the population of South Africa, the amount of people that live in South Africa are are the amount of people that are struggling with the complexities of malnutrition. Here in the United States, uh, while we don't face that kind of extreme hunger and poverty per se, uh, the reality is we have 8 million children right now that are struggling with some kind of food insecurity, meaning they're not quite sure where their next meal may come from. So while the context is different and we can acknowledge it, uh, we sometimes joke about the phrase, um, so-and-so is hangry. Think about the challenges of a child experiencing human flourishing. So for me, because I'm a follower of Jesus, I see things through the lens of scripture and theology and God's desire for human flourishing. It is impossible for a child to be able to thrive in school and social relationships if they're not able to receive not just calories, but healthy nutrition for that child to be able to uh, thrive. And so, you know, I think we can acknowledge the difference, but it doesn't mean that our commitment to both uh, should be off the table. Let me ask you this too, Eugene, um, and I'm not an expert in all, in all of this, but it's my understanding or I've heard that, you know, there was a time when food was scarce. Uh, but because of technology, we can actually eliminate that scarcity. And there's really no good reason if we go about this the right way that people should be hungry. Can you speak into that a little bit? Well, um, if we were a church right now, I would stand up and shout a huge amen. Because I think what you said, even though you may not be an expert on food matters, uh, is small t true. It is the truth. Uh, we have enough food around the world. We have enough resources around the world. I'm not saying that it's easy because it's really complex, right? The world is complex. Political matters are complex. Governments are complex. All you have to do is just even look at any church community. You know, as a pastor for many years, uh, when people ask me, what's the best thing about church? I'll say people. And they'll say, what's the most difficult thing about church? It's people. And that's the reason why I think communities and government and politics uh, are complex because it involves people. But I would just say uh, yes to everything that you shared uh, at Bread. And I think oftentimes in the D.C. world, um, I've often heard it say or said that all we need is the political will to end hunger. And I kind of cringe at that answer, to be honest with you, even though some of my colleagues at Bread say this. Because I think indirectly what we're saying is that the answer is in our political systems and political processes. Now, all of us here, we understand why politics matter. Um, it's not the answer, but it's certainly one important answer 
in response to so many challenges and complexities. What I say is that we don't need political will. We need human will, a, a human drivenness towards empathy and compassion, a care for, for our neighbors. And for us as Christians, it's to truly be convicted by uh, one of the two greatest commandments that Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior, conveyed to us, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, yes, we have enough technology. We have enough knowledge. Um, an example of this is that if somebody were to say, well, let's go a little deeper in this conversation about malnutrition and children, we actually know, like scientifically know what works to be able to help children who are struggling with what they call wasting or stunting or malnutrition to be able to get to a point where their bodies can start to thrive and then eventually begin to flourish. But we need the resources, we need the collaboration between lots of international agencies to work together. Uh, and so, yes, it's a matter of will. And I would love for Christians in all of our imperfect brokenness, driven by our faith, to raise up our voices to say, let's go, let's do this together. And the great news is that we have history demonstrated in uh, our nation of the church, the capital C church that chose to come together and raise their voices, whether it's the PEPFAR pro program, whether it's Feed the Future and, and what have you. And so I would love to see more of this uh, in our church, in our nation and around the world. That is a good word. Uh, and I know another issue which we can get into in a second if we, if we want to is just food deserts. I, I personally live in a food desert and thankfully I have the resources and transportation to get my food elsewhere and get healthy food. Uh, a lot of people don't have that option in a lot of different places in America. And that's unfortunate, too. I know uh, Chicago is not uh, immune to that either. Mm -hmm. I don't know about Seattle, but it's it's an issue all over. So uh, we're not done yet. This is just the first segment. We got some more questions to ask and we're going to keep getting into it. So we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. You got Justin Gibney here. You got uh, Pastor Chris Butler and our special guest, uh, Reverend Eugene Cho. And we are talking about hunger, poverty and just all things Eugene Cho is into right now. And let me say this, you know, I go to Greater Pine and Grove Baptist Church here in Atlanta and we have a a very strong uh, food pantry uh, that where we're giving out food every week. Uh, feeding a lot of different people. And I, I love that, you know, churches, we come under a lot of criticism and folks want to say we're not engaged, but there are a lot of churches around the nation that are feeding people on a daily basis. So I want to give a shout out to all those folks that do that. But why is it important, uh, Eugene, also to be advocating for policy? The pantries are great. Nothing wrong with them, taking nothing away from that. Why is it also uh, important for Christians to be advocating when it comes to the policy side of things, too? 
Well, a great question. I want to just quickly go back to your comment about about food deserts. You know, over the past year and a half, uh, I don't know about you guys. I'll just speak for myself. Um, I have, despite the pandemic, I have not had to worry about food. Um, feel very blessed and privileged. Um, there's probably some theological wonkiness there, but yeah, I, you know, I've not had to worry about hunger. I've complained about the pandemic. Obviously, we've had to be safe and all of these measures. Uh, food prices have skyrocketed during this time. I've complained, but I've never had to worry about this. Uh, the pandemic and trying to get to places on public systems, I haven't had to utilize them because I have my car. So I think about people that are living in food deserts that don't have access to transportation as readily as we may be able to. Those who uh, might really struggle with milk and eggs going up in prices by two, three, four times the prices in some places. And so food deserts are a real thing impacting our neighbors here in this nation. Uh, but, but to your question you know, about policies, uh, I think there's a couple of reasons why we have to be advocating for policies. If we could solve the hunger crisis merely by churches alone, we probably uh, you know, wouldn't be having this conversation. And it's not because churches aren't doing their part. I genuinely believe thousands upon thousands of churches, because we all know that more often than not, usually the only occasion in which church leaders and churches come into the news is when there's something negative or bad. I, I, you know, I'm not trying to play the victim card, and I'm not, but I think that's the reality. I know of hundreds of churches in my neighborhood in Seattle that are doing beautiful stuff, simple, humble, beautiful stuff to love their neighbors and to uplift their neighborhood. Of course, no one knows about that. But here's the reason why I think ultimately politics matter. Politics matter because it informs policies that impact people and more often than not, people that are unseen in our larger systems of powers and structures. And every time I read the Holy Scriptures, every time I understand that God cares about people, including and especially those who are forgotten and on the margins, the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the list goes on. Uh, no policy is perfect. We know that. But this is the reason why we have to be educating ourselves about policies, advocating for healthier policies, and knowing that when a signature is signed on a law, I, you know, I'm grateful for your church that you know helps and impacts hundreds of members in the church. But when a law, a policy becomes law, it has the potential and the capacity to impact millions of people, if not tens, and sometimes hundreds of millions of people, either in our nation and around the world. Yeah, the end campaign talks about this all the time. If we're not trying to influence policy, we're making we're missing a huge opportunity to love our neighbor, to help people. And that's really what it comes down to. Chris, just enjoying this conversation uh, so much, first off. So just thank you so much, Eugene, for being with us. Um, when we think about the 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 church getting involved in policy, sometimes I hear that, you know, support from the state and state programs, that's not really the long-term answer. We really need to be talking about uh, family uh, structure issues and how do we uh, encourage 
you know, marriage and family through policy, which again, these are things that I'm all about that. Uh, but can you help those who are listening right now sort of draw the connection between material politics uh, and material policy and the sort of moral imperative of the scripture? Yeah, let, let me see if I can give an example. And I know it's not going to be a perfect, but this is how I try to explain it. Now, as a pastor of a local church for many, many, many years, I often struggled because um, so much of our conversations w- was centered around the individual person. Now, we all know that matters. We all know that that's critical, I think, in our spiritual formation and theology. So I was encouraged by that, but I was at times confused and frustrated that leaders wouldn't talk about systemic and structural uh, transformation and change as well. Now, after becoming the leader at Bread for the World and working with policymakers and in the Beltway in D.C. and meeting with members of Congress, it sometimes stuns me how the majority and at times it feels as if all the conversations are about systems and structures. And there's rarely conversations about the need for personal formation and transformation. And I know that not everyone shares in my Christian lens and Christian worldview, but you know, it's a reminder to me that both of these things matter. And so, yes, while we advocate for material uh, policies that help um, uh, for a, a child or a family's thriving, an example would, would just be uh, a child is not going to be able to experience health and vitality and flourishing and to be able to um, pursue their destiny and their identity if they are starving or they're thirsty. And, and this is the reason why scriptures speak so poignantly about needing to feed the hungry and to also uh, give water to those who are thirsty. And yet we're also reminded uh, that uh, man, that human, that we're not able to live on bread alone, that there's something so unique about our imago Dei that us being created in the image of God. This is why I think, um, you know, that the Christian worldview, that both matter, right? That evangelism matters and justice matters, that these are not competing commandments. And over the last decade or so, uh, a question that I've been receiving more and more to the point that it really concerns me uh, that I've been receiving uh, in engagements or conversations is they'll say, Pastor Eugene, what's more important, justice or evangelism? Uh, and it's uh, very unsettling because these are not competitors to one another. They constitute the whole gospel. Talk to us about some of the specific policies that uh, Bread for the World is advocating for right now. What are some policies that Christians should know about and that could help you know, your mission? Well, there's a couple things. I'll give an example of one each on the domestic side and on the international side. And let's just be honest. Anytime you mention policies, maybe people are open to that. But when you talk about specific things and right now in U.S. politics, everything seems very partisan. Right. I'll mention. So here it is. The child tax credit is one of the things that we're advocating for. And I get a myriad of responses from people because I think there's sort of a stigma 
or there's a kind of a stigmatization around hungry people, around welfare programs. People aren't working. People are lazy. And I do think that there, as Christians, we have to be careful about misinformation, disinformation. And we also have to be careful about the denigration of those who experience hunger and poverty, a.k.a. the poor. But the child tax credit is significant because there have been numerous folks, including my uh, analyst team at Bread for the World, uh, that have deemed that the child tax credit has the ability to reduce childhood hunger by nearly 50% in this country if it was made permanent. Now, it's not cheap. It's a commitment. It's very expensive. But I find it very difficult sometimes that individuals or Christians or politicians, that we rarely mention the cost of something when it's for programs that uh, maybe they're supporting, but when it often comes to welfare programs, it becomes the number one thing that we elevate. Now, listen, I'm not trying to say that I'm against the military or against the importance of the military. We know that in a fallen world, it's important, it matters. But I just find it challenging that it rarely comes up in terms of the budgeting of the military program. And yet when we're talking about social programs, like investing in schools, investing in neighborhoods, investing in programs like the child tax credit, uh, it it simply uh, becomes the number one barrier. Uh, let me just give you a couple statistics. And this is, again, verified by numerous policy think tanks and analysts. Poverty among um, African-American children would be cut by 52% uh, if the child tax credit would be made permanent. Uh, among Latino children, 45%. Among indigenous Native American children, it could be cut by 62%. Among white children, 39%. Among Asian-American AAPI children, 37%. Uh, my point is, as a nation, we've got to prioritize our children. We've got to prioritize. I mean, uh, for me, as a Christian who believes in the uh, a theology of um, the sanctity of human life from womb to tomb, um, I want to be about caring for our children Um and the child tax credit will be an example of that. Um, I'm babbling, but I'll just mention uh, the uh, advocacy thing that we're working on right now from an international level. We're working on something called the Global Malnutrition and Prevention Treatment Act, the GMPTA. Right now, it's in the House. We have 77 co-signers. To our knowledge, it's the second most bipartisan bill that's sitting on the House right now. And what it's basically advocating for is a, a elevated commitment and focused commitment around global malnutrition, uh, the element that we were talking about earlier. If it's passed, and prayerfully, when it's passed, it can be a game changer that will elevate and dignify tens of millions of people, particularly mothers and children. And so we're hoping to receive some good news that it will pass in the House. And once that happens, uh, we, we know there's going to be a kind of a, an uphill battle in the Senate. But we're praying that that will happen and eventually signed into law by the president. I'm really proud of Bread for the World. We work with coalitions, but Bread for the World really has been driving the GMPTA. And grateful for our churches and denominations and individual members that have been calling their members of Congress 
to advocate for the passing of this bill. And I know Chris has been uh, tweeting and talking about the child tax credit uh, nonstop. Uh, Chris, you got any follow ups to uh, what Eugene just said? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's so great that that you're doing the uh, the advocacy work that you are doing. Um, I guess the question that I get the most, whether it be in the church or sort of on the campaign trail and in different contexts right now, is is there real hope for the child tax credit? I talked to so many people who, you know, who had that taste of what those uh tax credit payments were like. And I mean, literally, Eugene, you know, it's almost a a daily affair uh, where I'm talking to somebody who, you know, had, you know, sort of food insecurity issues addressed. And and those things sort of, you know, we we think about, oh, well, these lazy, poor people who need to get, you know, jobs and blah, blah, blah. But even I've talked to a lot of folks who were spending cash to take care of those issues. And now, you know, their child was able to do a park district program or uh, some other kind of enrichment because that support was there. Uh, So many people who I connect with are, were seriously impacted by this and 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 it's taken sort of an emotional uh, impact. I'm going to, I'm going to get to my question, but it's, you almost see this emotional impact because people had this experience of what life could be like mm-hmm. for six months, mm-hmm. and then it was taken away. Um, you're in DC a lot, and you you work in the Beltway a lot. Is there any real hope yeah. for the child tax credit? Well, uh, Chris, brother, thanks so much for what you're doing, for having these conversations, for elevating you know the child tax credit. I mean, we're talking that. The CTC impacted millions of people. Food insecurity here in the U.S. dropped by 31%, about 30% after the first wave of the CTC payments went out. I have spoken with pastors who have shared with me that members of their churches were in tears because they didn't quite know how impactful that monthly CTC help uh, payment would support them. There are reports that 51% of families that received the CTC, uh, they bought food for their children, right? If I'm a loving parent and I've got extra cash and my kids are hungry, I know exactly where it's going to go. It's going to go to our children. So I just want to first say it, it, it matters. It was working. Is it perfect? Of course it's not. But we know that it matters and it works. And to your question about is there hope? Man, this is a hard question. Because, you know, like as a, as a Christian pastor, as a minister, believing in a theology of hope, we're always supposed to say, uh, yes, there's hope. But I think we've got to also be truth tellers and, and just share it's an uphill battle right now because of the partisan politics that uh, is undergirding, I think, the state of affairs in our country. Uh, there just seems to be a lot of obstructionistic politics on both sides. And I just wish that sometimes, like, uh, if we could just advocate and just take out certain things uh, from the larger bill that's been uh, uh, discussed right now with BBB, uh, the child tax credit would probably be one of those singular things that I would be advocating for. Let me ask you this. You know, anytime you talk about any type of welfare program or programs like this, you get people who say all that's doing is kind of adding to irresponsibility Um, that, you know, that's 
uh, incentivizing people to have more kids and that they can't take care of and, and all these things. What's your response to that? I mean, obviously, even when it comes to welfare pro- fair programs, we got to be smart about it, right? There, there, there can be some negative in- incentives that are created. But what's your response to that general uh, argument? Yeah, Justin, you know, if we're honest, that question, this conversation has been around for a long time and will probably continue to be around for a long time. You know, my tendency is I always like to just begin with affirmation. What I mean by affirmation is I want to acknowledge that welfare programs are not perfect, uh, that there are those who are are exploiting the programs. Uh, but we also know after doing intense and intensive research that uh, on the most part, it works. It has incredible impact. Uh, the investments that we've made both in this nation and around the world. I find it really problematic and at times painfully comical that when we see um, whether it's investment banks or the banking systems that have abused uh, certain loopholes in our nation and that resulted in the uh, home crisis and the fall of Wall Street in 2008 and years prior, like we don't go around basically hating on bankers. I don't go to my local bank and, and just hate on bankers. Uh, but when it comes to those who are receiving the welfare benefits, it reminds me in many ways of what I read in the book of Amos. In the book of Amos, you got this guy who was a farmer and a shepherd. He wasn't a prophet, but as a small business owner, he travels around Tekoa, southern region, eventually to the northern region. And he begins to see those who are, quote unquote, poor. Uh, But what uh, really, I think, angers him is that he sees people vilifying, dehumanizing the poor. And what makes it worse is that he sees religious people using false, erroneous theology to explain why poor people are poor. Uh, And so he goes to this particular temple and gives this prophetic word that God speaks through him. You know, I hate your religious feasts and what have you. So what I would say is I would acknowledge that it's not a perfect program. We should always work to make it better. And the answer to uh, food insecurity is not just exclusively CTC. So if, if, if I was here saying, you know what, CTC is the cure-all, the answer to all things, you should shut down the podcast right now and let's talk just Lakers basketball. It's mm-hmm. not the answer. But and there has is, been by- – yeah, go ahead. It is one answer. It is one answer, and there is a larger holistic thing. And for me as a Christian, this is the reason why I love partnering with the church because the church has a role – I think, in human formation and through the Holy Spirit transformation as well. And there has been bipartisan support. I mean, some of the details there's been, you know, some differences on, but you've seen bipartisan support and even, you know, even folks on both sides coming up with their own plans. But I'll let we got a few minutes in this segment. I'll let uh, Chris take us out. Yeah, I mean, I I would uh, I was going to sort of go toward this idea of bipartisanship because we we talked about the capacity to maybe pull some things out of Built Back Better, right? Because that sort of big omnibus had its day. It it, it didn't work. And there are plenty who support the whole package and would like to have seen it go through. Um, But some of these things are so significant um, in their import and their impact. And they do have 
bipartisan appeal um, if they can be pulled out. I think we have folks who listen to the podcast who sort of participate on both sides of the aisle. What would you encourage us to be doing uh, if there's any uh, hope that even though this is an uphill fight, that we could encourage policymakers on both sides of the aisle to start to form coalition just around this very important uh, and significant program and start to move it from uh, you know, the realm of the very unlikely, at least into the realm of the possibly doable? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think your question is the answer. It's let's be attentive. Uh, let's be educated. You know, policy world, um, for all for its imperfections, it's a marathon. And so right in this moment, if I'm feeling discouraged, it's because I am feeling discouraged. We've invested a lot of work and energy. We've had tons of meetings with members of Congress, probably about 200 meetings with members of Congress. We've met with Senator Manchin on a couple of occasions, our, our members of, and, and advocates and church pastors. So we're doing the work, but I'm also realizing advocacy and policy work is a marathon, as is the justice work. It is a marathon. And so I would encourage people Let's continue to be educated, to be very sensitive and to be aware. And then I, I love this conversation about um, having a bipartisan approach. I talk about this in, in my book, uh, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. Uh, Bread for the World, we, 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 we tell people we are a nonpartisan organization working in bipartisan ways for the sake of the common good. And thankfully, yeah, we do have people on both sides of the aisle. But as we all know, these are really strange, challenging, difficult times. And it feels as if working in bipartisan ways in itself has become very, very challenging. I, I recently had a conversation with a member of Congress. Won't mention this person's name, but this person said, uh, as a word of wisdom, I've never heard this, but this person said, Eugene, be really careful how you use the word bipartisan. It's now become a very partisan word. And I thought to myself, wow, that's really, really weird. But I think mm -hmm. we find ourselves during this time. But I would just say, I want to just echo what both of you shared. Um, policy is one way that we can love our neighbor. It's one way. And if we can connect the dots for those who are listening to the podcast, uh, we shouldn't abdicate that call you know, to policy organizations and to politicians. But it's one way for us to live out our Christian faith. Awesome. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement.
And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with our special guest, Reverend Eugene Cho. Now, uh, uh, Eugene, you wrote a book uh, recently. You just mentioned it, which is uh, Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk, uh, where you're talking about politics. You're talking about how Christians should engage politics. We wrote a similar book. I haven't had a chance to read yours, but I will be reading that soon. So I kind of want to get into what your book's about, why you wrote it. But I think there, there might be some folks that would challenge you and say, why can't I be a jerk? Uh, one, one thing we hear all the time is, is Jesus turned over tables in the temple. So, Eugene, doesn't that justify anything we want to do, any way we want to act within, uh, within politics? Well, I, I'm sure you guys get that question. I'd be keen to hear how you respond to this. I, I find it interesting that sometimes we take one event or a couple exchanges and we make that we make that the totality, the full expression of Jesus and his public ministry. Um, we're not Jesus. We're called to follow Jesus. Um, and I think we've got to really distinctify and made up that word, distinguish our actions and the actions of Jesus. Uh, was Jesus a, a, a jerk? I, I would say no. Uh, there were uh, actions in which he uh, responded in righteous anger, uh, speaking up on behalf of those who were unjustly treated, uh, those who were mocking basically the name of the house of God. Uh, but I don't want us to somehow usurp Jesus to fit into our image. And I think the book is really about that. You know, uh, the book is 10 commandments, small C commandments, instructions, encouragements, invitations that I give to the church about how we should respond uh, as, as Christians to the complex world of politics. Uh, let me just take a step back. You know, I, I quit writing this book about four times, I think. Wrote it, and along the way, I was just uh, starting to get uh, fearful about the pushback I was going to probably receive once this book went out. And um, yes, uh, that's happened. It's been on both sides. You're too conservative. You're too progressive. And I find that as Christians, to follow Jesus means that to some, you're going to be too conservative. To others, you're going to be too progressive. To be a Christ follower is to be faithful to Jesus, to be faithful in tension, to have integrity, to love Jesus anyways, to advocate for those who are marginalized. Uh, that's what it means to follow Jesus during our time. And I find it challenging that in our world today, and it's not just in the political world, in the church, that we can somehow allow our politics to inform our theology and our worship of Jesus rather than our theology of Jesus, the kingdom of God, to shape our politics. It, it, we've somehow made it completely upside down. That's cultural Christianity. And cultural Christianity inevitably will create cultural Christians rather than disciples of Jesus. One more thing that I'll say. I've gotten some pushback from pastors who said, hey, you know, I, I can't support you as a pastor writing a book like this. The reason why I wrote this very imperfect book, and it's very imperfect, I know people are going to disagree, and that's okay, is that if we don't faithfully, prayerfully, biblically try to engage the church, uh, even on complex conversations like politics, we're abdicating the responsibility of discipleship to others. And right now, people are getting discipled by what and who, Probably most likely cable news, their favorite pundits, their favorite news sites, and the list goes on. 
And I'm not trying to uh, demonize the media. That's not my point. I'm saying that we shouldn't abdicate these kinds of responsibilities to others. We should be having them in these kinds of conversations in the church, rooted in scripture and from our convictions about the kingdom of God. Yeah, I appreciate how you address the turning over of tables, because anytime we bring up civility, anytime we bring up charity, that is the first response we get. Well, Jesus turned over tables and it's like. Come on, guys. <laughs> that That is no justification for your whole public witness being mean and nasty and all that stuff. Chris, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think there's such an important uh, conversation. I mean, one, one of the things that makes Jesus turning over the tables so dynamic is that he wasn't always turning over stuff everywhere that he went, right? Um, otherwise, it loses its impact, which is something that I, I, I try to talk to people about just in terms of how politics and advocacy works. If you're always mean, being mean starts to lose its impact. Um, you know, w- when we are talking about uh, this sort of like cultural Christianity, one of the things that comes to my my mind is like, how do we begin again to draw boundaries a- around some things, right? Because I, I feel like politics can become ultimate to some people because we have very few sort of clear distinctions between the realm of the political and the uh, the the realm of the cultural. And, you know, politics can't fix everything and individual responsibility can't fix everything. Those domains both have to exist. But it's almost like we, we have this mashup of every sort of domain. Um, do, do you see that? Do you think that's an, an issue? And if so, how do we start to have some of those boundaries and, and distinctions? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. That's probably your second book. Uh, you guys need to write that book because I'd be keen on reading that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't quite know, but I think uh, how I try to navigate this space is the lordship of Jesus. Um, uh, is Jesus my Lord? Is Jesus my Lord in all places and spaces? And it's oftentimes messy. But I think uh, as you speak about messiness and the mashed upness, it feels as if now politics has become the primary lens by which we see all things. Uh, Recent sociological data and studies basically convey and corroborate this. Uh, I think another word for this is idolatry. Uh, It's really become, and this is the reason why I think it's influencing and infiltrating the church in many ways. And so I think if we understand what politics is and it's not the savior of the world and that we work within that system as best as we can with as much integrity as we can, uh, but ultimately acknowledging that politics is not um, my source of worship. Um, I do believe that there are three groups of people within the church in how they navigate politics. There are those who have completely abandoned politics for lots of reasons. Some become because they're really exhausted, but there are some who altogether abandon politics because they feel like they're called to only focus on spiritual things, right? That's theologically problematic, and we've got to call them back into engagement. But then we should also acknowledge and lovingly call out those who have gone to bed with politics, political parties, and powerful politicians, uh, that somehow 
their political inclinations have justified everything that they do and they say. And they can somehow tweak in some Bible verses to justify their actions. And then I think there's a third group of people that I think is probably larger, but we don't quite know how to engage it, but we know that it matters. And so your book and hopefully my book and others, uh, leaders that are trying to help Christians navigate this space. And we've got to give ourselves some room to acknowledge that it's not going to be perfect. And we're going to probably disagree on some things, but it's how we choose to engage in this space as well as the policies that we advocate for. The civility matters as well as that which we're advocating for. Both of these, I think, are important to our public witness. The style and the substance. Well, Eugene, we have enjoyed having you on the Church Politics Podcast. We need to make sure this isn't the last time. Anything you want to leave uh, the listeners with before you go? Uh, again, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I would love to encourage people uh, once more, if they haven't heard of Bread for the World, to check us out, bread.org. Uh, we want you to partner with us, uh, not asking for money. We're asking for your voice. We're asking for you to help join us writing letters uh, to members of Congress. And we're really, really needing this kind of coalition from the church to help push for the child tax credit, as well as the Global Malnutrition Prevention and Treatment Act. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Ann Camp, uh, we do humbly ask for money uh, sometimes. You guys know that you you know this uh, takes a lot of time and uh, out of our schedules, and we are trying to give you the best content that we can. So if you can, uh, we would appreciate if you went on our website and supported the the movement, or if you just supported the the podcast, which you could go to patreon.com slash church politics, give a lot, give a little, we love you either way, or just tell, if you ain't got nothing to give, that's cool too. You can just tell people about the church politics podcast, because we have, uh, you know, many times over 10,000 listeners, and most of that is through word of mouth. So y'all folks telling people about this podcast has gone a long way. Again, we want to thank our, our Reverend Cho for coming on. So many good things. I know y'all heard so many connections with what the AND campaign stands for, and hopefully we'll get an opportunity to um, to, to break bread and also stand with uh, bread for the world. Uh, as usual, and Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, and Camp. Well, I'll let you. I said, kingdom, come to me, rest in me, kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.